Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. I send you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in the country of Japan, where we still have not been able to meet like this. I can't tell you how moving it is to be here with all of you and to be able to worship with you. I mean, earlier Jim prayed for the persecuted church. There are people around the world who can't meet because of persecution, and there are still many countries in the world where people can't meet because of the coronavirus and the lockdown from that. So we can't take that for granted as we come together. Now, this has been a particularly hard time in Japan for many reasons. And there have been times when we've been tempted to feel alone, uh, isolated, apart from everything that nobody cares. But we know that's not true because you've been sending me emails of encouragement saying, hey, I just prayed for you. Or asking for prayer requests. Or asking how we can pray for you. So thank you so much. You don't know how much that has meant to our family during this time, the encouragement coming from all of you. Early on in the pandemic, when we're trying to figure out how to respond to what was going on, I mean, this is new territory for all of us, I think. Uh, Jim Pendleton helped us connect with people that you support around the world, especially in Asia. And basically, First Evan provided a network for us to connect with pastors and churches throughout Asia to say, well, what are you doing? Okay, well, how's that work? And what do we need to be thinking about? And we're having this dialogue with each other, praying with one another, encouraging one another. That, too, has helped us greatly to give us wisdom during this time. And so we thank you for that. This morning, I was running and saw the sun rise and the mist rising from the ground, and it was so beautiful. And just to realize, a Sunday morning, okay, every day on Sunday morning, the sun rises and God's people are worshiping him. And one of the first countries in the world every Sunday morning to get the sun, certainly the country with the most biggest population is Japan. And yet, while here we have this moving service of worship together, this joyful noise, in Japan, it's silence. 
there's hardly any churches at all. If you can imagine that. It's, it's almost like a, a slap in the face of God that every Sunday morning, here we are, 15 hours ahead in Japan, people worshiping, and there's so few people who are worshiping him there who don't know the name of the Lord to praise him. And so we have a big task ahead of us, and we pray that you would continue to pray with us to this end. Now, there is hope, and I've never seen the Japanese people so long for community. And I think once the restrictions lift, that it'll be exciting to see how people will want church more than ever before. So we are praying that God is going to build his church like perhaps never seen in the history of the nation. We ask you to continue to pray for us and along those lines. Now, those of you who know me know that I usually sit over there behind the organ. I'm very comfortable there. I love playing the organ in worship and playing concerts. But it's quite a privilege to be able to stand before you this morning and to be able to, to open God's word and to meditate on it together. And what I want to do is first look at a, a passage that has meant a lot to me, that's been a big encouragement to me these past couple of years, but also specifically because it helps us see Jesus. Perhaps never before have we seen that there is nothing that matters except our worship of Jesus, our hope in him, the wonder that we can find in him. When I was the, before I worked at First Evan, I worked at Second Presbyterian Church just down the street in Poplar. And I sat behind the pulpit during the sermon and there's a plaque on the back of the pulpit that says this, Sir, we would see Jesus. Preach is never sure to preach again as dying man to dying men. And that's what I am praying for this morning, that we would be able to see Jesus as we open his word together. So to that end, let's pray and then look at the passage in front of us. Dear God, we thank you that we can gather here together in worship of you this morning. We pray that your presence would be with us as it already has been through singing and scripture. And now as we meditate on your word, and then communion. God, you are such a great God. It's just phenomenal to us that you have this desire to know us personally and to be involved so intimately in our lives. We pray that as we look at this passage before us, written to a church long ago in a faraway country, that it would speak to us today, that you would speak to these words, through these words to reach our hearts and that we may know you and wonder in you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, this passage is from Revelation. And we know that Revelation is full of images that are very hard to understand. And this passage is certainly no exception, ending with the hidden manna and the white stone. But before we get there, we need to remember that the general message of all of Revelation is that it's all going to be okay. God is going to make it all work out. This is a message to 
hurting churches, to suffering churches, to churches in pain. And so this time of a global pandemic, I thought it would be especially appropriate to look at this morning. I'm going to be going through these verse by verse, kind of looking at it. So I invite you to look at your Bibles and follow along if you would like. I'll be looking specifically at the NIV. I know you have the ESV in front of you. So verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The church in Pergamum. The first, we, have, we realize that the words of him referred to here is Jesus from other parts of scripture. And the sharp double-edged sword is the word of God or the Bible. So this message is coming from Jesus and the word of God. And we know pretty quickly that this is a message to a hurting church because we read it in the very next verse, verse 13, when he says, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. So this phrase, put to death, in the ESV, it says put to death. It means he did not just die, but he was publicly executed or martyred. And you can imagine the kind of worry and fear and anxiety that would bring to a church. Just wondering, are we safe? Who's next? Am I next? My wife? My husband? My child? Is this a place where we can worship openly? Well, obviously not. In Pergamum, the church in Pergamum is not a very big place. Pergamum is an ancient city in the western side of Turkey. And it's at the base of a Acropolis, a rock outcropping that comes from the ground. There's a very narrow plot of land just on one side of that rock outcropping where the city could grow. So they all had to squeeze in there. It says, we know what it's like to be cramped in Japan. Well, here they're very cramped. There's only so much water that can come out of the base of that mountain. So they have to be near the water. They have to be cramped in the small space. So if they're trying to be an underground church, well, somebody walks by, looks in the window. What are y'all doing in there? <laughs> really can't hide their faith. And you can imagine the pressure they're under, the responsibility that they feel during this time. Like how do we worship God as a community in this kind of environment. And if that wasn't bad enough, the rest of 13 talks about, says where Satan lives. Where Satan has his throne. Where Satan rules, in a sense. So if before they were just feeling like they, the fear and anxiety of who is going to be persecuted next, now we're looking at a situation where they feel so weak and powerless and helpless where all of the authorities are against them. How can they respond in this situation? They feel like a church. They are a church that is hurting. This is not a happy place. They are suffering 
And then if that wasn't bad enough, (laughs) we go to verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. It looks like they're not handling the situation very well. Obviously, they're doing some things that Jesus is not happy with. This situation, the fear and how they're relating to that is making them, is leading them to do things that they shouldn't be doing. It says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And then verse 15 Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They are holding to teaching that is not what Jesus is teaching, not what the word of God is teaching, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's leading to idolatry. It's leading to sexual immorality. And now that we understand their situation, we can kind of, try to justify why they're doing this. You know, they're, they're, they basically want to fit in, I think is what's going on here. They're saying, we don't want to stand out because that's dangerous, <laughs> especially during this time. And yet, Jesus is saying, you are turning away from the only thing that can give you hope during this time. Verse 16, repent Therefore, I'm the only one who can give you comfort in your anxiety. I'm the only one who can give you the power to carry on when you feel so helpless. Don't abandon the gospel now. (laughs) He had said it in verse 13 too. Remain true to my name and do not renounce your faith and me. You see, in the, peop- in the eyes of the people of Pergamum, they're thinking that the best thing they can do at this time is just kind of lay low and, and fit in for a little bit. But he's saying, stay with me. Don't renounce me. I'm the only one who can bring you hope during this time. Verse 16, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Which we heard earlier is the word of God or the Bible. Believe me, friends, we don't want to be on the opposite side of the word of God. (laughs) We don't want to fight against what he's teaching. That is the only thing that can give us strength to carry on. When we feel like we're hurting, in our suffering, in our pain. And I think the church around the world is feeling this pain like never before. I, I mentioned earlier how hard it's been in Japan, the suffering that is happening there. And let me just give you some examples because I don't know if you're hearing some of these stories. It's just... So when the pandemic hit, one of the first things we needed to do is figure out, well, how can we keep worship going? Well, most, quite a few churches in Japan don't have places to meet. They can't afford it. So in our case, we immediately had to move worship to our living room, which is not a very big place. 
and trying to find people who would be willing to participate in the worship team or audio, video, or PowerPoint was really difficult because quite a few Japanese live in multi-generational homes. Children with parents, parents with grandparents, grandparents with maybe with their great-grandchildren. And so there's this fear. Decisions had to be made not just on, well, what if I get sick, but if I get sick, then what if I get my grandparents sick or those who are more vulnerable? And so there's this real tension going on in each household. Like, is it irresponsible of me to be participating in worship in this way, to help stream worship? And then we know that there was a situation where South Korea is right next to us. And in a lot of the news in Japan, we were hearing about the main, some of the main super spreader events that were happening were in churches, were in worship services. And that really scared the leadership in Japan because they, we're very weak and small in Japan. And if we were to get national news that we as the church are the super spreader events of the coronavirus in Japan, <laughs> that would injure the image of the church for years to come, severely impact church planting. There was such a burden to make the right decisions at every step of the way because we knew how it could have an impact seen by our neighbors. On top of that, you have the things that we've seen everywhere, just singles in the church and on our missionary team who were isolated, sometimes for months at a time without being able to see a single person. How do we help them in their loneliness and their depression? There was a missionary family on our team who had just come and would just entered language school when the virus hit. Bam, that was the first thing to go. All the foreigners gathered one place. <laughs> they had to shut down all the foreigner uh, language schools. So then they're home, and then not long after that, the public schools shut down. And so they were in this high-rise apartment building with three small children, energetic children, <laughs> And they're not able to learn the language, and so they're not able to build relationships. Like, that's so important, you know, when you move to a new place to build new contacts, <clears throat> new friends. And they weren't able to do that at all. Meanwhile, they're getting the opposite. They're getting neighbors angry at them about all the noise. <laughs> they want to go to the park, but there's police yellow tape around the parks to keep people out, to keep people from gathering there. You can imagine how hard it was for this family. And you can, I mean, there's so many examples like that around the world. I know families that are trying to get back to Japan, but couldn't because of the, the, the new restrictions, right? And that's not just an inconvenience. That's when you're in a bilingual setting, you want your children, you can't keep them out of the learning that language, like Japanese, for too long. Otherwise they may not be able to get back in because they would get too far behind their peers. So by being stuck in the States means they may not be able to go back in the schools, which means they need to start considering English language private schools, which might then mean moving to a different location or change in ministry. So there's major things going on here. And then there's families who had to leave so suddenly because the conditions got worse so quickly 
and they were afraid they wouldn't be able to get back if they waited, right? The, the, the word out there was a get back to America if you're Americans. And so then they got stuck, <laughs> not able to say goodbye to people, not able to sell their furniture, not able to close things back. They still haven't been able to go back, some of these families, and don't know if they ever will be able to. <laughs> There's friends of mine, one of the, the, the married couple, one went to a conference Restrictions changed, not able to get back into the host country, but the, the spouse is immunocompromised, so not able to leave. They've been apart from each other over a year now, not able to see each other. And this is almost like something you read in those missionary biographies, right? Where, like, because of terrible conditions and it was hard to travel, they, you know, husband and wife could be apart for years. But in modern day, that's really hard to imagine because travel has always been so easy recently until now. And stories of this just are prevalent everywhere in the missionary community. And then on top of that, we see this big shift in the culture of the church in America. I'm in the States now for furlough traveling and every weekend I'm speaking, I'm playing and participating in different church services so I'm kind of getting a feel of what different people are doing and saying around, around the country. And there's a major shift going on, which you can understand. Right? Around the world, there's all these differences and visas aren't being offered and you have to be quarantined for long periods of time and differences in regulations with vaccines and testing and all these different things. Never has it been harder to travel <laughs> in recent times. And so it's almost like the idea of missions is, is ludicrous. Like why would we send an American overseas when it's that difficult? Why not just support nationals? And so we have some big challenges ahead of us, I think, as a church to figure out where are we going and how do we negotiate this? What does the future hold so I'm really identifying with what the church here in, in Pergamum is feeling. So let's return to the passage. What does Jesus say? What is the answer to oh, this, these challenges, to this suffering? Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, it's pretty clear from what's already been said that victorious does not mean you just have to try harder or something that you are accomplishing. Jesus has already told us that what it means to be victorious is remain true to his name and not renounce our faith in him and not follow the teaching of others, right? That's what it means to be victorious. And he gives us two symbols, two things to help us see these positive symbols of hope. One is the hidden manna, and one is the white stone. Okay, first, hidden manna. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, they are wandering in the desert. They're going through a particularly difficult time. 
They don't know where they're going. <laughs> they're surrounded by enemies on all sides. They don't know how they're going to make it or what the future held. There's no food. <laughs> There's no water. But God provided exactly what they needed in that time. He kept their clothes from wearing out. He gave them water and he gave them food. He gave them manna. This manna gave them nourishment. It gave them life. And through it, he made his daily presence with them clear. It was not a thing that was just given once and forgotten, but every single day, he's giving them what they need. He also gave them this white stone. This too is a symbol of hope. It has a new name written on it. A clean start, a fresh identity, a hopeful future. Now there's a lot of comments that have been made about this white stone, the commentators uh, bringing out the different things that are not shown in this passage, but we know from that time that white stones were often given to victors of an athletic game, like the Olympics, right? Instead of getting the gold medal, you get a white stone. And then you could use that white stone like a ticket to get into the victory banquet afterwards. It was like a, an entrance into this time of celebration. And when we think about that in relation to this passage, we can see how that might be a good, a good way to interpret this. To be, he's already said that those who are victorious, and when we think about the, the messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the lamb, to those who hold on to the gospel, to those who hold on to Jesus, you will get to, you will get this manna, you will get this banquet with me forever and ever. So that could be an interpretation of it. Other commentators have said that there was a time when trials were held. If someone was declared not guilty, you're innocent, they were given this white rock. And that was to imply that this is, you are like, you're like this stone. You are clean, you are innocent. And that seems appropriate too, because he's already said, I have a few things against you. But you know, um, I'm going to forgive you. Our relationship will be restored. You will be declared innocent and spend eternity with me. So those could be two. But, you know, I think rather than focus on what does the white stone mean, is to realize that whatever it meant, <laughs> it was an intimate message of hope to the people of Pergamum. We may not know all it meant, but they knew what it meant. And that was the point, right? That exactly at that time, that what they, what they needed most was given to them at that time. This promise of the white stone, giving hope in their terrible circumstances, in their fear, in their anxiety, when they're feeling helpless, when they're feeling weak. 
And so the first promise of the white stone is that it gives them hope in their circumstances. But let's move on to the second promise. And I've kind of hinted at it already. The fact that it's an intimate promise, a promise of intimacy with God. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Only the one who gets the stone knows that name that's written on it. In Japan, we stand in lines a lot. <laughs> Japanese like, I don't know, it's just part of the culture to stand in long lines. But it's not, this isn't like, here's your white stone, okay, next. Here's your white stone, next. Here's your white stone. It's not like that at all. Actually, in Japanese, it may sound better. Hai, dozo. Hai, dozo. Hai, dozo. Yeah. But it's, it's not like that at all. Every single stone is different. Every single one has a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is amazing. I can't imagine the God of the universe that he'd want this kind of personal, intimate relationship with us. It's phenomenal. And we can share that love with others. So I think that one of the, the points of being, say, community groups and to be church is the fact that we can share these things that God is doing in our lives, known only to us, with others. We can hear in others how broken relationships are restored. We can hear how there's blessing given in terrible, terrible circumstances. And when we hear their stories... We can love God all the more. We can praise him more fully by hearing their stories. And as a missionary, I can't help but get excited about what that means then for around the world. Or the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. Through these disciples of all nations, we are seeing how God is working not just through us as different personalities, but as different cultures, too. We eat different foods, we wear different clothing, we speak different languages. And to see how God is working through individual people in those cultures around the world increases our knowledge of him all the more. <laughs> we can delight in him all the more when we hear these stories. This is part of the excitement of what missions is, is to be intimately involved in what God is doing around the world. Not just sending a paycheck or, or prayers, but to know intimately how God is working through those people and to be encouraged by it. Because this is the picture of heaven itself. Perhaps the most famous passage is in Isaiah 6.3 where it shows us the angels who are calling to one another. They're not just calling to God. They're calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Every country, every culture 
But even the angels of heaven, in all their perfection, need each other to enhance their praise of God, calling to one another, delighting in the holiness of God. If they do that, shouldn't we be doing that as well? And in fact, we are. And that's what the psalmists call us to over and over again. You know, praise him in his sanctuary. Praise him in the heavens. The psalmists are constantly calling us to praise God to each other, to God. And we see that throughout Revelation as well. Paul says, together with all the saints, we will know the width and height and depth of the love of God. Together with all the saints. That he is calling us to, through each other, to know more this, this kind of language of perspective, right? Height, width, depth of the love of God through others, through their perspectives, that we may know God more fully, that we may worship him more fully. And this is just an amazing call to be church and what it means to be worshiping God as a community. Why we need to be gathering together and not just, you know, one, just me and God type religion. No. No, God is working through us as a community And to hear the stories of what he's doing through each and every one of you encourages us, enables us to know him more fully. And you can see what a call this is to missions as well. Why we want to be going around the globe and working with people around the globe and see what God is doing through them. So one promise of the white stone is hope in our suffering But another promise of the white stone is love through this unbelievable intimacy of God with his people as we fellowship with one another around the globe. But very briefly and lastly, I'd like to share one more promise. And this is the one that we can't go by too quickly, but it's perhaps the most obvious the white stone, the promise of the white stone, that is a, a physical object. You, know, you, can, you can hold it in your hand. You can feel the weight of it. You can turn it over and look at it and delight in it and be amazed by it. I can say, see, this is my white stone. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> I have the stone. I have the white stone. Now, it may sound a little strange to use that kind of language, but think about it. Like, my sons and I love, like, superhero movies or fantasy novels and fairy tales, things like that. And there always seems to be some object that promises to save the world or destroy it. But there's some sense of wonder around it because of where it's come from, what it represents, who it came from. And by the fact of having this object, the characters and we, the readers or viewers, are drawn into this story. We're like a story that we feel like we're part of or should be part of or want to be part of. And we can wonder in this thing, this object. 
and we can delight in. Oh, it just, there's so, it just seems like God has given us art and imagination to help us not escape from the world, but to wonder at the world all the more deeply and to give us delight in it and in the world to come. So I think that's what he's doing here in the promise of the white stone. Okay, it, it's, prom- it's piquing our interest. You know, the promise of the white stone coming to theaters near you. No, I mean, it just, <laughs> it sounds like the title of some movie or novel or something like that. And um, so what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I think there's a hint of it in the words that came before. The hidden manna. We know that's Jesus. He is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven above. He, the Israelites got manna that fed their bodies. The hidden manna gives us food to feed our souls as well. Um, we've been given Jesus. He is our manna. He is the bread of life nourishing us. And so... Could it be that the white stone is also Jesus? That the gospel is not just a concept or an idea or a teaching that we are to follow. It's an actual thing, an actual object, an actual person. We can reach out, you know, and hold the face of God in his son, Jesus Christ. The God who created all things who's bigger than we can possibly imagine that he would give himself to us in a person that we can hug and hold. The wonder of the white stone should be something we can never, ever forget. The excitement it can give us hope in any situation even during the times of a global pandemic. To have this kind of intimacy with the creator of the universe is just hard (laughs) to fathom. Pretty soon we're going to be moving into communion. And the promise of the white stone is the person of Jesus given to us to satisfy our heart's hunger to nourish bodies and souls. The manna of heaven, bread broken, that broken people may have fellowship with God. He's the special gift of God to us, so intimate and real that we're just speechless in wonder. So do you see this hope that was brought to the people of Pergamum in their suffering and in their pain? And do you see this love through intimacy of relationship with him when they felt so alone? And do you see the wonder of this physical gift that we may not only hold on to the promises of God, but that we may actually hold on to the very person of God himself in Jesus Christ? These promises of the white stone must have been a tremendous hope to the people of Pergamum. And I pray that it can give us that hope as well. Let's pray.
Dear God, we pray that we would never lose that wonder in this gift that you have given to us. Especially now as we're moving kind of into the Christmas season, help us to be your church that people may know this intimacy with you, to know this amazing gift that you have given us to a world that is so desperately in need of you and your gospel. Help us more and more to know you through each other, through our fellowship with one another, and to love you all the more deeply. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.